Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. If you are here tonight and you don't have a Bible, you can get the attention of one of the ushers, and the rest of you can open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10 for our Bible study tonight. Um, my kids, well, they're, they're, you know how your kids get like the, the best gift and you don't even know what it's going to be, um, but the one they like the most, our kids got those um, hoverboards, you know, those little things you stand on and they glide and they haven't stopped. I mean, they've worn tracks around our house uh, since Christmas. And I was thinking that we should get those for the ushers, you know, that, that if, you know, they just come gliding up the aisle, you know, I just think that would be a very effective uh, use of your tithe dollars uh, to, to, to do that. <laughs> I, I am just joking. <laughs> but anyways, um, New Year's resolutions. You guys, do you guys into New Year's resolutions? <laughs> no, yes, yes. I am usually not because I know what they're worth, um, but, but I have two. Um, one is uh, that, that as best as I can, as, as much as is possible, uh, this year, I want to hold in front of my eyes the perspective that life is happening for me, not to me. And, and by that, I just mean that whatever happens in, in the days, the daily, the setbacks and the moments, whether it be uh, big things, small things, things in myself or in others, uh, that God would help me to hold the, the viewpoint that, that this is happening for my good and not against me. You know, and that, that's a challenge for me. I struggle with that. I'll do the best I very uh, can to uphold that, you know, but it's the truth, right? It says that all things are working together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And so uh, I'm not being an optimistic person. I'm being a, a Bible-standing, believing uh, Christian to live that way. And so uh, that's for me, and maybe that'll help you as well. My other one is that to, I want to preach shorter messages. So that means we got to get going on this. <laughs> so we are in Acts chapter 10 tonight. Let's do this. Let's pray one more time and just ask God to uh, um, just separate us unto his word and unto his voice tonight and his purpose and his will, and then we'll get into it. And so, Father, we, do, we know, Lord, that, uh, that you speak. We know that you're alive. We know you're the same. And we know, Lord, that your word is powerful beyond uh, what it says, but it, in its ability to reach into the deepest part of our lives and to change us to reveal yourself, to grow us, to help us, and, and Lord, to save us. And so we commit ourselves to you tonight in this time, and we pray that you would bless your word in us as we study it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me give you my title right off the bat, because uh, I probably won't remember to do it again, but uh, the title of the message tonight is um, Cultivating Grace, uh, and that's spelled G-R-A-Y. C-E, and you'll understand why uh, as we get into the message. The subtitle is, He is Not the God of Your Box, and uh, an amazing um, passage of Scripture tonight as we come into Acts chapter 10, and we see God challenge the church, God challenge the leaders of the church, and He is still challenging us even today in uh, very like manners, so we get to hear it and, and be a part of it. Um, one of the big conclusions that you come to when you study the life of Christ and his ministry on the earth is that, is that, that, that God is not interested in religion, that Jesus came and he demonstrated to us that God is interested in relationship. And, and the reason we know that is because of, of the values that Jesus demonstrated when he was on the earth. He was all about people. He was all about meeting them where they were at. He was all about uh, reaching into the context of people's lives, dealing with them uh, in their brokenness, in their, uh, in their pain, and, and bringing them to life and showing them what life was intended to be like. And that was what Jesus did. He had very little uh, value for the religious part of things. We see that if there was any contention, if there was ever a time that he was even angry, it was usually at or aimed at or towards uh, the religious, ritualistic, uh, uh, plastic veneer of, a, of, a, of a, a devotion to God that didn't really mean anything beyond just the, the, the going through the motions. So God is a God of relationship. Now, we also know that God is the initiator of that relationship. The word says that we love him because he first loved us. He's always the initiator, and we are the responders in the relationship. 
And anytime there's a relationship, there's usually a reason for it. When you have a relationship with someone, sometimes you, you, you uh, question or you uh, wonder about their motives. Like, what do they want? And I want you to know something is that when God initiates relationship with humanity and with you individually, he has an agenda. There is something that God wants in a relationship with you, and that is that he wants a deep personal and intense relationship with you. Okay. There are different types of relationships. There are cordial, congenial relationships, casual relationships, friendships, distant relationships. Okay. But God describes himself as a consuming fire. That's who he is. And he is intense. He is deep and he is personal. And so if God engages you in a relationship with himself, that's what he wants. He wants to take you deep. He wants to get personal and he wants to consume every part of your life. And what you will find or you are finding or you have found is that that is the best thing that you could ever do with your life is to come into a deeper and deeper, increasingly deeper relationship with God because he is all that much worthy of it. And you discover that as you go. Okay, now that is the intent behind our study in the book of Acts. The whole series is called Devoted, right? We're studying the life of Paul because he's a man just like you and I, who was found by God, who was then in a context of a past, converted to Christ, and then cultivated and grown up in this relationship, and then called with something to do, and then he continued in that calling as he lived out his days on earth. It culminated with a certain uh, ending, and then he was awarded a crown. All of these things are, are laid out for us on the pages of Scripture, and they are a model for you and I of what God wants to do within our lives. And so we're following Paul, really, through this journey of growing in the Lord, being devoured by the all-consuming fire that is his person. And so we've seen his context, where he came from. We've seen his conversion, how Jesus met him and initiated this relationship. And now where we are as we come into Acts chapter 10 is in the season of Paul's life where he is being cultivated. He is going from the friend of God to the lover of God. He's going from someone who knows God at a distance to someone who knows God deeply, to someone who experienced him somewhat, to someone who is consumed by him. And it is very definitely a process that God takes each of his people through. And so he is in the middle of this. Now, if you're just joining us in that, what we are seeing right here in this text is a contrast that exists between Saul or Paul, who has just come to Christ, just been baptized in the spirit, and then kicked out of the church because of the unrest that was surrounding him. And now we see Peter, and Peter really is the theme of the end of chapter 9, chapter 10, and then into chapter 11. We follow Peter, and what we see in Peter is an example of where Paul is going. Peter has been in this thing a little bit longer. He's been cultivated. He's got some history with God. And we see the difference between a man who's energized and anointed, but annoying as Paul was, and as oftentimes a new believer is, and Peter, who is anointed by God, called by God, but that same anointing, that same spirit has seeped deeper into his life. It's gotten beyond the surface and it's gotten into his failures a little bit and it's gotten into his relationships a little bit and it's gotten into his experience a little bit and he's had some ups and downs and he's gone through a thing or two and as the spirit of God gets deeper into Peter, we see the effectiveness of his life and the strength of his relationship with God expressing itself in deeper ways than what we saw in Paul's early life. Okay, so we have this amazing contrast here, but what I want to show you this week through Peter in Acts chapter 10, I want to show you what it looks like when you've been cultivated. I want to show you what your life looks like, what happens in you, the kind of relationship you have with God when you allow him to cultivate you and go deeper. And then next week, I want to look at Paul, who's going to answer the question of showing us how it happens. 
What's our part to play in being cultivated and growing? Because it isn't just one side. It isn't God just doing it and we do nothing. There's something that we do in it as well. And Paul's going to explain how it worked in his life. So tonight, I'm going to show you what it looks like and tell you why it matters. Next week, I'm going to show you how it happens. And so as we get into uh, Acts chapter 10, we pick up with Peter. Now, this segment of Peter's story involves three interactions that he had with different people. The first was Aeneas. We saw him in chapter 9. He was healed by the Lord. The second was a woman named Tabitha, who Peter, through his prayer, saw raised from the dead. So we see that Peter very much has power and that those two interactions caused many people to profess faith in Jesus when they saw what God did and why God did what he did. Now in chapter 10, we have the third interaction, and that's Peter and a man named Cornelius. So let's look at it. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. It says that there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, and he was a centurion of the band called the Italian band. So he's a Roman soldier, which meant that he was in charge of a hundred Roman troops, and he had a titled regiment. And it tells us in verse 2 that he was a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people, and he prayed to God always. And he saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, so about three o'clock in the afternoon, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he said unto him, thy prayers and thine alms, or your gifts, what you've given, are come up for a memorial before God. Okay, so we have this man, Cornelius. We're told that he's a centurion, which means that he's a Roman citizen and a Roman soldier who is both living and working in Israel. So that means that he is a part of the politically dominant force because Israel at this time was subservient to the Roman Empire. So he is politically dominant, but he is the racial minority. He does not fit within the culture that he is uh, working within. And that would make for a very tense relationship uh, between the citizens and this centurion. We're also told that he is devout. And usually when we talk about being devout, we we use it uh, singularly in the context of being devoted to God. But in the language, the implication is that it's just simply saying that he was a faithful man. He, He doesn't yet know God personally, though he is devoted to as much of God as he knows. But essentially, it's telling us that he was a person of integrity, that if he was a centurion, he was devoted to his government. He was devoted to his men. If he was a husband, he was faithful to his wife and to his family, is that he was the kind of guy that when you look at him, what you see is what you get. And it's important to realize that there are people like that in the world, even if they aren't saved, quote unquote. We're also told that he feared God which means that somewhere inside of him under the surface, he was persuaded that the God, uppercase G, of the Jews was the true and the living God. And thus he was obedient to his conscience that testified inside of him that there was a God and also to whatever knowledge he had obtained concerning who this God was and what it was that he required of Cornelius. We're also told that he was a giver, that he gave alms, meaning that he put action to his convictions. He was someone that knew that he was uh, given a stewardship of, of, of helping those that were in need, and he was willing to do it. And we're also told that he was a person who prayed, that he was a man who believed God to be a hearing God. And thus, he wasn't afraid to pray to God, hoping that God would, in fact, hear him. So he was all of these things, but the one thing that he was lacking is that he did not yet know Jesus. But Jesus knew him, and Jesus is going to reveal himself to Cornelius uh, in the passage that is before us. Thus, he sent an angel to to, uh, um, address Cornelius and and to tell him that his prayers are come for a memorial before God. Now watch what he tells Cornelius to do in verse five. He says, now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose nickname is Peter. 
For he lodges with one, or is living, staying with one, Simon, who is a tanner, whose house is by the seaside, and he will tell you what you ought to do. Now, I, I love the Lord, uh, even though he frustrates me sometimes, just like he does you and all of us, because he's so far beyond what we are, and his ways are not our ways, and he doesn't uh, make things all nice and easy. But what God is about to do right now to the church is he's about to create a situationship. Okay, because God is going to going to ruffle some feathers. He's going to stir things up a little bit because God is about to venture into an area that the church is going to be very uncomfortable going into. All right. And, And what this text is revealing to us right here at the onset is two very important truths that I hope I can communicate to you tonight. Number one is this, is that at every single point, God is working something in people in ways that you can't see. On the outside, this centurion man looked like the enemy. He was a Roman occupier. He did not belong in their land. His presence there, every single time he would come in his full Roman garb with his Roman helmet and his Roman spear, it would be a reminder to a supposed to be free people that they weren't free that they were actually being occupied by an enemy nation. And they would see him and look at him and say, he is an enemy. He does not share my values. That man could never be someone who's accepted by me. However, God was doing something under the surface of what was seen inside this man that was so much deeper than what the shell on the outside showed. And I hope that we, as the people of God, as we grow in God, can come to a place where we begin to see beyond the surface of what is seen on the outside of people, their role, their title, even the things that they say, and that we can realize that God is a lover of all people and that he is endlessly trying to reach people with that love. And he sometimes is doing something on a deeper level to prepare a person to come to a knowledge of himself. The other truth that this text reveals to us is that God is willing to go places that the church of God isn't, okay? Because even the Christians of this early church age were not interested in seeing a man like Cornelius join their ranks. And that's gonna become increasingly evident as we move uh, through the text. Now, understand that the orthodox belief of the church at this current time, meaning that if this church that Peter is a part of had a catechism that said, this is what we believe and where we stand doctrinally and biblically, their stance and position, orthodox, would be that Jewish people only can be saved. Gentile people are not candidates for salvation. That salvation is for the Jews. Jesus said, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that even Jesus did not reach out to Gentiles. Gentiles are not candidates to be part of the church. That is orthodox. That's where we stand. You cannot be Roman and Christian. Even more than that, you cannot be a centurion and Christian. Those things are mutually exclusive and they are not candidates. Now, God is going to blow the box, the walls off that box, Because God is about to save this man, and he's going to do what the church thinks God cannot do and that God would not do. Now, in order for God to do that, God has to do some work within the church and prepare the ground, which he's about to do. But I love this passage for this reason, is that this is the first time, and not the last time, but it's the first time that one day's heresy became the next day's orthodoxy. Okay, which means that for you to say Gentiles can be saved on this particular date in church history, they would have said that's heresy. That's heresy. We don't believe it. That's, that's nonsense. It's unbiblical. It's I'm, perish the thought. But then 10 years later, that's orthodox. Now it's normal. And to this day, if I were to say that to you, Gentiles can't be saved, you'd be like, that's ridiculous. That's so 2000 years ago, that belief. Like the, the, we, we've gotten over that hurdle so long ago. But it's amazing to me that God is willing to do this and he does it and he does it continually over and over again. And there is something in us that we create this orthodoxy and we frame walls around God and we put him in this box and we say, well, this is where God is. This is where God's truth is. And he never moves outside of this box until he does. 
And he's done it over and over and over again throughout the church age. You guys have all heard the stories in the, in the 1500s, in the time of Reformation, when the church began to adopt worldly music in their hymnology, whether it were the harmonies of the, uh, the bar songs or whether it was the stylistic ways in which the songs were put together. And the orthodoxy of the church said, no, that's the devil's music. Like, we don't do that. We don't believe it. We're not going to receive it. We're not going to go there. It's wrong. And then over time, God begins to bless it and use it. And soon that heresy becomes orthodoxy. I remember, you know, back, I wasn't alive, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago that preachers stopped wearing the traditional, like, preaching garment and they started to dress down a little bit. And some people say, that's just so, that's so liberal. We can't do that. Preacher, you can't wear a sweatshirt. You can't wear a t-shirt and jeans, and a jeans with holes. You can't wear sneakers to preach. That's, that's just wrong. You can't do it. But then over time, heresy becomes orthodoxy. When they first started using the television to preach the gospel, that's the devil's box. You can't use that medium to preach the word. That's like mixing oil and water. Those things don't go together. You can't do it until God started to use it and bless it. And the church started to catch on about 10 years later. And so, well, maybe it's okay. You know, it's withstood the test of time a little bit. I remember when preachers started having campuses, churches started having campuses and a bunch of the church said, no, you can't have campuses. Everybody's in the same place. You don't watch a screen. You can't get saved watching a screen until people started getting saved watching a screen. And all of a sudden, you know, well, maybe we could do that a little bit. And then COVID hit, right? And all of a sudden, it's like, well, we like screens. You know, we like the internet. We like technology. We can embrace. I read this week about uh, Life Church out in Oklahoma. They're one of the largest churches in the country. They actually have 36 campuses all around the country where, where they have, you know, they have their own pastor at each one. They have their own worship team, their own children's ministry, their own counselors. They have this whole thing, but they're one church, 36 locations. And they just opened up, wait for it, the very first VR campus, virtual reality campus. And there's a VR pastor and VR counselors and a VR fellowship team. And you literally get the metaverse goggles and you put them on and you log into church and you sit in a virtual room with other Christians all over the place with your metaverse glasses and you listen to a message. You can interact with people and the whole thing. And we hear that. Let me ask you what's going on inside of you. You say, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. That's heresy. That's wrong. That's unbiblical. Well, listen, They've already had at least three people get saved in VR church. Okay, let me ask you a question. Is there anything inherently wrong with VR church? Is there anything inherently unbiblical? Is there anything disqualifying about it that says God can't use it? I actually think it's a really good idea. Okay, because what you have is you have some Christians, all right, that are saying, all right, where are things going? And they see this, this avenue, they're saying, that's just a medium, it's technology, it's amoral, it's not moral or immoral, it is just simply a thing. And we have the opportunity to see where things are going, let's get out in front of it, so that when people show up in it, we're already there, and God is using it. And I love the way that God is willing to do that but it challenges the church because we get very comfortable in, in what we say. Well, this is okay. This is not okay. This is good. This is not good. And God will challenge that over and over and over again. I think it's amazing the way he does it. Well, God tells Cornelius to send for Peter and God is going to do something new and God's got to pick someone to spearhead it. So who does God pick? God picks Peter. He says, send men to Joppa, call for Simon, whose nickname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner, and he will tell you what you ought to do. Now watch what happens in verse 7. And, and watch the timing of it, because it's, it's, it's God. It says that when the angel spoke to Cornelius, or which spoke to Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. And on the morrow, in the morning, as they went on their journey and drew near to the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. All right, so here's the thing. 
three o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, God speaks to Cornelius. And he says, hey, you need to go and send men to Joppa, find Peter. He's going to tell you what you should do. That's Tuesday, 3 p.m. The next day, Wednesday, 12 noon, God now comes to Peter. What does that tell us? It tells us that God already knows that he's going to be able to persuade Peter to get into this thing. All right. He knows it ahead of time. That's why he talked to Cornelius first. And so Peter at 12 noon, it says he went up about, uh, went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. That's noon. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. So God is actually going to use his appetite to help reveal to him the message that's, that is to come. It says, but while they were preparing or making ready, it says that he fell into a trance. All right, now I know when you read that, and especially in the King James, you think like, what in the world's going on here? It's like, are Peter's eyes rolling back into his head? What does this mean that Peter fell into a trance? I think I understand it because I, I've been there, okay? And, and it's, here's what it is. It's, it's not like this, like you are all of a sudden hypnotized and people are like going like, hey, hey, come back, come back. It's not that kind of thing. It's, it's the kind of thing, and you've probably had this happen too, where God gets your attention on something and he starts like revealing something to you. It may be that you're stringing like scriptures together in your head and you see something, you hear something and all of a sudden it's like, it happens in a message sometimes. A preacher will say something and like you lose five minutes because it triggers a thought pattern and all of a sudden you're like, wait, that connects with this and this is why this, but I heard that on the radio and how does this, and then five minutes later, you've, all you've heard is wop, 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 and then you come back, you know? And it's like a download, right? Like God is doing something here. So Peter's there, God gets his attention and Peter starts to have a vision. Verse 11, it says that he saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners being let down to the earth. Now, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things, that's bugs, and fowls of the air, specifically the unclean among them, like bats and uh, vultures, that kind of thing. So all of these ceremonially unclean animals are kind of tucked on this sheet. And I imagine that Peter just sees the bottom of it, and he's like, what's this? Angels lowering it down. Is this a big bag of money? Like, what's coming? And then it lowers to a point, he sees, and all of a sudden it's like all these unclean, disgusting animals. And Peter's like, beautiful angels, unclean animals, what's up? And God speaks. It says in verse 13 that there came a voice to him that says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, this was the furthest thing than anything Peter ever imagined that he would hear God tell him to do in a particular moment when he's exceedingly hungry. I'm sure his initial reaction was, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. You know, like, no, I'm not supposed to have ham and bacon. You know, I need to eat kosher Jewish foods, you know, but, but he knows God. He knows the voice of God. And now God speaks to him and he says, hey, Peter, I want you to, to eat this thing. Now understand that these are forbidden foods for the Jews. Judaism was built upon the dietary laws. When you read Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 14, and God highlights very specifically what you were allowed to eat and what you were not allowed to eat. God is crystal clear about it. There's no gray area in it at all. This you can eat, this you cannot eat. Very specific, okay? Now, all of a sudden, all of these forbidden foods are being laid out, shown in front of Peter, and God, who had said no, now says yes, and emphatically commands Peter to go forward and eat this thing. Now, that's extremely confusing to a Christian because God is telling him to do something that is unbiblical, at least as far as what biblical knowledge Peter had in his day. God is also telling Peter to do something that even Jesus didn't do. We know that Jesus didn't do this because what Peter's about to say in the next verse 
is that I have never eaten anything unclean or ceremonially uh, abandoned or, 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 or uh, God says no. We've never done that. Jesus didn't do it. Peter says, I have never done that ever in my life. This is extremely confusing to me, God, what you're asking me to do. It would be like if God came to you, and you're a new Christian, and you just have a religious background, and God just comes to you and says, hey, I want you to go get a tattoo. And you're like, wait, what? Like, no, that's like, uh, no, a neck tattoo. Go, go do it. I'm, I'm telling, you'd be like, wait, God, this is so confusing. Or God comes to you and he says, go to the gas station and buy a lottery ticket. Buy 10 of them. You'd be like, no, no, Lord, you don't tell people to do that. Like, you wouldn't do that, Lord. <laughs> like, why are you telling me this? And this is what's going on inside Peter, okay? So Peter replies, responds to God as is expected, verse 14, and he says, not so, Lord. Is this a test? I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So in verse 15, the voice spoke to him again the second time and said, what God has cleansed, that call not thou common. In other words, what God is saying to Peter in his explanation now is he's saying, listen, the rules have changed because of the blood of Jesus. And because of the blood of Jesus, that which had been ceremonially unclean has now been ceremonially cleansed, and the animal kingdom is no longer off limits, and that's because of Jesus completely, okay? That which was previously defiling to you has now been sanctified, and it no longer is. Now, just start to play that out if you're Peter, who knows the Bible and knows the Old Testament scriptures and think about how insecure he just became in what he thought were solid convictions and rules and boundaries. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I, if I am now longer allowed to eat foods that were forbidden in, in, in the law of Moses because of the blood of Jesus, then what else am I now allowed to do that I wasn't allowed to do under the law of Moses because of the blood of Jesus? This is extremely challenging to me. What rules apply? What rules don't apply? How is it possible that something that once was solid fact no longer is solid fact and now is very much a gray area, what used to be black and white? How is that possible? And for who does this apply? Is this for all Christians or just some Christians? Can everyone eat pigs or just some of the Christian eat pigs? God, you just made it very difficult for me to do this because you've put me in a situation where it's gonna take more than a Bible to figure out what's right. Did you hear what I just said? He's gonna put you in a situation where it's gonna take more than a Bible to figure out what's right. And sometimes God puts his people in a situation where it takes more than a Bible to figure out what's right. And so God speaks to Peter the third time in verse 16. It says this was done thrice, and then the vessel was received up again into heaven. Okay, it happens the third time. So Peter's like, and then it just ends. And God's like, you'll figure it out. And so Peter's like, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't even know what to do with what God you just showed me because it's so far beyond anything I can understand. And if you're calling me to lead people, I have to bring this message to the church and they're not going to receive what I, this is crazy. And so verse 17, while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and they asked whether Simon, who was nicknamed Peter, were lodged there. And while Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, so now God speaks in a different way. The Spirit of God speaks to Peter and said unto him, behold, three men are looking for you. Arise, therefore, and get down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. And so God interrupts Peter's inner thoughts, and God says, hey, Peter, snap out of it. There's three men. They've come from Joppa. You think about this while you go. Get on your way, and you can evaluate my word while you're going with them. So Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius and said, behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause wherefore you are come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, 
a just man and one that fears God and of good report among all the nation of the Jews was warned from God by a holy angel to send for you into his house and to hear words of you. Okay. Now I want to ask this question, put it out before you to, to just consider and think about for a minute. Why did God choose Peter to be the one that would venture into this realm of something new that God was about to do. Why Peter? Because God's about to very much do something new that's gonna blow the church wide open. I mean, this is gonna bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and, and, and take things places that no one ever thought that it could. But it's gonna be very difficult and very controversial and it's gonna cause a lot of problems for a lot of people for a lot of years. But God chose Peter to spearhead this thing that would be so difficult. Why Peter? Why did he get to be the one that did this? I'm going to suggest to you for five reasons, and it has to do with our cultivation in the things of God. The first is that Peter had history with Jesus. He had some time logged. He was intimate with Jesus and knew him personally. He knew the character of God through Jesus. He knew the heart of God through Jesus. He knew the mercy and the love of God, and he had experience in these things. Peter was with Jesus when Jesus was there with the woman at the well, this woman who had five husbands, and Jesus showed love and mercy and extended grace to her. Peter was there when there was a woman thrown on the ground in front of Jesus who had just been caught in the very act of adultery, and he heard Jesus take her by the hand and say, you, you, you're, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Peter was there when Jesus engaged Zacchaeus, a tax collector who was friendly with Rome and showed him kindness and acceptance and mercy and ate in his house and saw him changed and saved. Peter was there when a centurion on another occasion came to Jesus and said, sir, my daughter is at home sick even to the point of death. Would you please come? And Jesus didn't say, no, you're a Roman occupier and we don't deal with your political type in our kingdom. So I hope she does all right, but I'm sorry you're not a candidate for this. No, Jesus beelined his way there. And he saw this girl, and Peter was akin to that. Peter was there on the night that Jesus was betrayed, and Peter himself took a sword trying to defend Jesus, and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, thinking that he would valiantly defend Jesus in some way. And he heard Jesus say, stop and put your sword away. Couldn't I right now if I wanted to end this whole thing? And then he took the ear, the, the lopped off bloody ear on the ground, and he touched the side of the man's head, and, and this young man was healed of it. He knew Jesus. He knew the mercy of God. He knew the heart of God, and he had history with the grace that Jesus extends. He not only had history, but he had intimacy with Jesus as well. We see that he was praying in the middle of the day, that he took time in the noon hour to separate himself for a few moments just to check in with God. Now, earlier in the book of Acts, we saw Peter doing that at 9 a.m. Now he's doing it at 12 p.m., which means that Peter was a person that knew he needed to spend time as often as he could quiet in the presence of Jesus throughout the day, even if it was just small moments that seemed insignificant. We also know that Peter's prayer was more a time of listening even than it was of speaking. Because he gets with Jesus to listen. And it's in the listening that God begins to communicate to him something that he is about to do. He's not only intimate, but he's sensitive. His senses, spiritually, were trained to be able to receive from God the things that God wanted to show him and the things that God wanted to say to him. He had learned over his time walking with the Lord how to discern the things that were coming from God versus the things that were part of his own thoughts. He was able to separate between the voices in his mind and the voice of the Spirit that was speaking within him so that when God spoke to Peter about something, Peter could clearly recognize that it was the voice of God. We also know that Peter was pliable, all right? He was pliable. And that is so, so important because if you're going to be a Christian under the new covenant, then you better be pliable because the Bible says that he is a potter and we are what? 
clay. And clay is not usable once clay is no longer pliable, which means that we need to be yielded in the hands of the potter, realizing that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and he'll do things that we don't fully understand, but yet we are still called to be pliable in it. I have learned uh, over the past two years, as you have too, that people will trade freedom for safety. Have you observed that? Yes. <laughs> okay, people will trade freedom for safety. If they have the perception that they will be safe, they will give up their freedoms in order to secure their safety. I have observed in 20 years as a Christian that Christians will give up their freedom for safety. I'm not talking about political safety and I'm not talking about earthly freedom. I'm saying that I have seen it because I have done it, that I have given up my freedom to be led of the Holy Spirit, to move according to the promptings of God in my life, because I would rather shy back in the safety of orthodoxy. If God would say to me that I want you to reach into this arena and grab a soul, I would say, no, Lord, that is unsafe. I cannot do that. Lord, I cannot get engaged someone in a conversation about secular music because that would obscure my witness as someone who is separated unto you. And so for the sake of my safety spiritually, I will not express freedom for the sake of reaching someone else. I think that COVID has been used by God to free a lot of pastors from orthodoxy that is fruitless. Just, in, just alone in, in the ability, the necessity of engaging and embracing technology as a means of communicating the gospel. It's so essential. And Peter was willing to accept a challenge to his convictions in order to move into an arena that the church was not ready to fully embrace. But God wanted to go there. Peter was finally faithfully compliant. When God said go, Peter went. He didn't question. He wasn't comfortable, but he went because he was persuaded that it was what God wanted him to do. What's my point? My point is that you don't get where Peter is without some serious cultivation. If you haven't logged in time with Jesus to understand and know his heart towards people, then you're going to have a very difficult time when God asks you to go to someone that you're uncomfortable with. If you're not spending time with him, you're not going to hear him and recognize the promptings when they come. If you are not pliable then you'll hide behind the safeguard of your convictions and you won't move into the place that God is calling you to be effective today, which is different than yesterday. And if you are not faithfully compliant, then you will delay in the moment when God needs you to move. I think it's so cool that a church ventured into that VR thing on the first day it comes out or in the first season. That it's just, they're, they're, it's, it's like you get the sense that there are people in ministry that are saying, God, what do you want us to do right now to get out in front of where the world is going? And I think that when someone has that kind of sensitivity and pliability and willingness to move, God will answer and open doors and use you in ways that you never thought were imaginable. And that's what God is doing with Peter here. It's essential to be cultivated. Okay, now, Peter's asking the question, is this God? <laughs> God, are you really asking me to do this? Well, verse 24, it says this. Actually, did I get, get even that far? I did. Um, verse 21. Let's read there. It says, Then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him, and he said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause why you've come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, and one that fears God, and of good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by a holy angel to send for you into his house and to hear words of you. Then called he them in and lodged them, and on the morrow Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the morrow, the next day, after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them, and he called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, Peter, uncomfortable in this moment, expresses his discomfort. He says, you know how that it is unlawful 
for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come into one of another nation. I, I am not really supposed to be here right now, and I'm exceedingly uncomfortable in this drag bar telling you about Jesus. I mean, that would be what it would be like. He says, this is exceedingly discomforting to me, but God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now, we were not told that Peter connected the dots back over when he received the vision of the unclean animals. But what we learn here is that that had nothing to do with unclean animals or unkosher food. It had everything to do with God accepting non-Jewish people into his family and to be recipients of his grace and the forgiveness of the cross. And do you hear what God revealed to Peter? He said, no man is common or unclean. Meaning this, common means disposable. Common means there's enough of them that if you lose a few, you won't miss them. And what God is communicating to humankind in his word is that there is not one soul on the planet that God looks at and says, I want to lose that one, or I'm okay with losing that one, or that one has nothing to contribute, or that one has very little value to me, or if I don't get that one, there's 10 others behind them that will fill that spot. When God looks at you, I need you to hear me, he sees value in your uniqueness, and there is no one that can replace the value that God sees in you. There is no man that is common to God. Neither, says he, is there any that are unclean. What does that mean? Does it mean that everyone is just saved? No. Okay, the animal kingdom has been cleansed ceremonially by the blood of Jesus. Humankind is qualified for cleansing because of the blood of Jesus. But we have a response to give to the gift that God offered through the person of his son. But what he is saying is that there is no one that is unqualified to receive that gift. There is not one person that has sinned themselves outside of the ability to be saved. Everyone can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That's how powerful it is. God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying, <laughs> maybe just a little, as soon as I was sent for, I asked therefore, for what intent have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting. He tells Peter the, the scenario with the angel down through verse uh, 33. And then at the end of verse 33, Cornelius says, now therefore we are all present here before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. In other words, Peter, please communicate with us the message that you have to bring. So Peter, verse 34, it says, he opened his mouth and he said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, for he is Lord of all. That word, I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are his witnesses. We testify of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him, Jesus, God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God, chosen of God, to be the judge of the living and the dead. What does Peter, Peter preach? He preaches Jesus. Okay, do you understand? The venue is different. The audience is different. The message is the same. He preaches Jesus, who he is, what he did, and now what you must do. Verse 43. To him give all the prophets witness 
that through his name, whosoever believes in him shall receive the remission of sins or the forgiveness of their sins. In other words, it has nothing to do with your race or your background or anything else, but whosoever will put their faith in Jesus to trade places with him, him taking your sin upon himself and you receiving the gift of his righteousness upon you, the transference of your guilt upon the innocent and the transference of his righteousness upon you, the guilty sinner. If you will receive that by faith in his name, then you will receive the remission of sins. And there is no one outside of the qualification of receiving that. Now watch this, verse 44. Here's the response. While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Do you realize they didn't even have a chance to answer the altar call? He didn't even say, now let's all bow our heads and close our eyes and the music will start to play. And this is a holy moment. Christians pray. He didn't even have to say that. As he just preached the message, the realization of what Peter was saying and the processing of the information and then the belief, the faith that what he was saying was true. No miracle, no sign, no one is healed or raised from the dead. Nobody's spoken in tongues or done anything crazy. Peter preaches Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the acceptance of Jesus, the heart and the intention of God in his love for humanity by sending Jesus. And as the word concerning Jesus reaches the ears and sinks into the heart of those that heard, faith is being appropriated and belief is happening in the moment of the hearing. And it says that the spirit of God fell upon all them that heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed, the Jewish believers, were astonished. Why? Because God just kicked the walls off the box they put him in. Because God just did something that they thought God would never do. God just reached into an arena and extended love to people that they thought were unlovable. He redeemed people that they thought were unredeemable. He showed mercy to those that they thought could never deserve or earn or get mercy, even though they themselves had. As many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, then answered Peter, and let this be the answer of every pastor and every Christian person and every person in ministry. Let this be the response of all of us. When God does something that causes us to be astonished because we don't understand it, he says, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? Can anyone forbid that we embrace what is going on right now because we see the effect, effectiveness of God in what's going on in this moment and in this place? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then he, they prayed him to tarry with him many days. What an amazing thing that is going on here in this moment. There's life-changing fruit being born out in this moment in the lives of these Gentiles. But understand this. This is very much going to turn into a situationship. Because the church is going to have a very, very hard time accepting what God is about to do right now. And it's going to take a, a, a whole nother chapter and some for Peter to try to persuade the other leaders in the church that this thing is right and that it's good. It's a big deal. This is going to be awkward for the church. But listen, it's going to be equally awkward for Cornelius. Let me ask you a question. Where is Cornelius going to go to church? Let me just think about that for a minute. Cornelius walks in and like, who the... Who let him in? How the? I mean, is he, is he going to be accepted in a church? Are they going to let him in? How about this? Can Cornelius keep his job? I mean, can you, be, can you be allegiant and devout to Rome and devout to God at the same time? I mean, didn't God think this through a little bit? I mean, he's putting Cornelius in kind of a tough spot here, saving him and all. It's kind of hard. Let me ask you guys some questions, and we're done. I'm going to just ask some questions. I want, you to, I want you to get really uncomfortable now. And actually, you know what I want you to do? 
I want you guys to actually answer these questions out loud. They're yes or no questions. And, and listen, there's no wrong answers, all right? If you, you just, if you, if you want to say no or yes, you just shout it out. There's nothing wrong, but I'm going to ask you these questions. I just want you to say it so you can hear yourself say it. Can someone in the Roman government get saved? Yes. Okay. Can someone who's saved stay in the Roman government? Yes. Can someone who is a liar get saved? Can a saved liar still stay saved if they fall back occasionally into untruths? Can a greedy, money-loving person get saved? Can a greedy, money-loving person still struggle with greedy money love after they've already been saved and struggle with that for a long time? Can someone who's addicted to drugs or alcohol get saved? Can a saved addict still be saved even if it takes them years, even if maybe they never fully get past the feeling of the temptation and the pull of those things? Can they still be saved? Can a person who's been burned in a church be saved even if they can't stomach to ever go back into one, but they still trust Jesus for their salvation? Can a church that has burned someone still be favored, blessed, and used by God? Can a homosexual be saved? Can a saved homosexual still be saved if they struggle and fall into temptation even when they're weak? Oh, it gets quieter a little. (laughs) Last question. Could it be that maybe things aren't as simple as we think? And that maybe we don't know as much as we think we know. If you want to be a cultivated new covenant Christian who is not in the back of the train, constantly catching up to what God is doing in the days that we're living in, then it will require that there be some serious cultivation in the depth of our relationship and knowing who this God is that we are following. Because he will always be bigger than we are. He will always be ahead of where we are. He will always be seeing things that we can't see and doing things that we don't understand. And he will always be willing to use those who are sensitive and pliable and listening and desiring to be used according to the purpose of his will. Paul, who ironically is the theme of our Bible study tonight, is going to become the senior, senior, senior pastor of the Gentile churches. And he is going to live this struggle that's being created right now for the entirety of his ministry. He's going to be maligned, discredited, hated, beaten, left within an inch of his death because he's going to move in what God is doing at this moment in time. And it's going to be Christians that are going to be his biggest adversary in the middle of it. And next week, he's going to tell us how He was cultivated to come to the place where he was willing to receive that call, move in the operation of that calling, and fearlessly move forward in it, regardless of what it would cost him. We're going to see how it happened. I already ruined my whole New Year's resolution. (laughs) I told you I was going to, because I was going to try to combine those two things tonight. You know, I was going to tell you the other thing I'm going to do next week as well. So I blew that. You'll have to forgive me. Can a saved Christian who makes a New Year's resolution break that resolution and still be saved? (laughs) (laughs) Let's stand. If you're here tonight and for whatever reason you don't know Jesus personally and you've never opened your heart to him, I want you to know that God is, is so incredibly desiring to reveal himself to you. That his heart towards you is goodwill He's not calling you into religion. He's not trying to make you a Christian, churchianity follower. That his heart towards you is only good. And he extended his mercy in coming into this world and showing us what life was supposed to look like. And he paid the price of forgiveness for all of our sins on a cross. And he extends the gift of righteousness to anyone that would receive it. And he desires that you would walk in that life and know that life and then grow in that relationship and be consumed by the only thing that's worthy of being consumed by. And it begins with you just opening your heart and just saying to God in the quietness of it by faith, Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. And there's a whole lot more you probably have to have to talk over with him, but it starts right there to just say, Jesus, I give you my life. I want you to be my Lord. I want to follow you. I want to know you. 
And in that moment, just like it happened for Cornelius, it will happen to you. And my prayer is that wherever you are, that that is happening, that is happening in your life. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Please help us, Lord, to not be in the back of the train catching up. Help us to not be on autopilot forming boxes around ourselves of safety. Jesus, fill us with your spirit. Jesus, move in us to bring us deeper. Make us sensitive and pliable. Renew us in the spirit of our mind. Bring times of refreshing upon us. And in this new year, and in this intensely complicated season of world history that we're living in, God, would you help us to see people the right way, to see situations the right way, to see you the right way, to see ourselves the right way. Give us wisdom. God, make us usable. That we might hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's our desire and our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.